There was a college founded in the Northeast to train pastors. And their motto, appropriately, was truth for Christ and the church. And 80 years later, after its founding, some alumni started to get concerned about their dear old alma mater. Certain theological positions, ideas had taken root. And they were convinced that another school needed to be founded. And so they went up the road and started another school. And their motto was light and truth. You may know these colleges. The first one is called Harvard College. And the second one is called Yale. Now, do you think those original founders would recognize? I don't either. They would not recognize the schools today. They wouldn't. The original founders of Harvard and Yale would not even know what they were looking at if they saw them today. They're elite academic institutions, but a far cry away from bastions of Bible-believing Christianity. And I wonder what happens to an organization, to an institution, to cause it to begin with such admirable clarity, truth for Christ and the church, but to end up where Harvard is today. And it's what organizational theorists call Mission drift. Mission drift. The process by which organizations and institutions over time, consciously and subconsciously, deviate from the purposes for which they were created. They drift from their mission. This morning I want you to know, the church is always at risk of suffering from the same thing. Always tempted to drift from our mission. You know, we just wrapped up a seven-week series to the second half of the book of Daniel. And we were looking at the ways that Christ has already established a kingdom, and yet He promises to come again someday and establish it in its fullness. That puts me and you in between. The in-between is the hardest in life. Where you know something's coming, but it's not quite there yet. Our kids know it well. Parents know it better. Are we there yet? You've left the destination, but you've not... Quite, you've left your starting point, but you've not right, quite arrived at the destination. And that's where we are as the church. We're living in between Christ's ascension and His return. And because of that, the church in every generation is at risk of losing the plot, of drifting from the mission. But thankfully, we're not left to ourselves to stay on track. God loves us. Jesus promised to build His church. And so He's given us some things to make sure we're constantly reminded of who we're supposed to be and what we're supposed to be about. Today I want to talk to you about one of those reminders, the Lord's Supper, and how we, as the people of God, are called to celebrate the Supper until Christ's return, to remind ourselves of Christ's death for sin, and to renew our bond to each other as His people. So you got your Bible, I know, why don't you open it up to 1 Corinthians, we're going to be there in just a second. But since we're just dropping in in 1 Corinthians 11, I felt like it'd be important to give you some background information. I don't know what you know about Roman Corinth, but it would have been a place to visit. Uh, uh, Corinth was a, a prosperous city in the ancient Greek classical period, but it had been destroyed as a result of war. And Julius Caesar refounded Corinth to be a colony of freedmen, former slaves who'd purchased their freedom or had earned it and were at risk of causing problems in the Roman capital. So he sent them to Corinth to repopulate the city. 
He also sent a bunch of retired soldiers to repopulate Corinth. Corinth sits in a perfect place and it controls a port. And so almost immediately, these freedmen and soldiers set about the task of remaking Corinth into one of the greatest cities of the ancient world. One commentator said it would have been like visiting Los Angeles, Las Vegas, and New York all at the same time. You wouldn't have imagined the wealth, the theaters that were everywhere, the giant temples set up to all the gods. Of course, it's a sensual place. If you're into that sort of thing, you could find it. And there's a church there. The Apostle Paul had spent a couple years with the people of Corinth establishing a church. And that outside world, full of upwardly mobile, prosperous merchants, stratified on socioeconomic levels, had found its way into the church so that they were at risk of drifting from their mission. And so Paul wrote them a letter, and they wrote him back. And then he wrote them another letter, the letter that we call 1 Corinthians. And he's trying to get them back on track, get them refocused on the mission. And here's how he does it. He points them to the way they're celebrating the Lord's Supper. Look with me at verse 17 of 1 Corinthians 11. In giving you this instruction, I do not praise you, because you come together not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that divisions exist among you, and in part I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, so that those who are approved may become evident among you. Therefore, when you meet together, get this, I've got this highlighted in my Bible, you may want to underline it. When you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in your eating, each one takes his own supper first, and one is hungry, and another is drunk. What? Do you not have houses in which to eat and drink? Or is it just that you despise the church of God and want to shame those who have nothing? What should I say to you? Should I praise you for that? No. In this, I will not praise you. See, all that outside world, upwardly mobile, stratified, you know what I mean, clear divisions between the haves and the have-nots, had somehow find its way into the church. Paul talks about it in the first chapter, blasts them full volume on the divisions that were present among them. And almost in every chapter of the rest of the book, he takes them to task for divisions and factions. That's not the way things should be. Most of all, when it comes to celebrating the Lord's Supper. And the reason is, when you think about the origin of the Supper, it comes straight out of Jesus' mouth. Right? The, the Lord's Supper was not a, a, some Play-Doh. You guys like Play-Doh? It's not Play-Doh that you don't like Play-Doh. Okay, it's cool. Um, tastes weird, so if you like to eat it, that is weird and strange, kids. Don't do it. It's not Play-Doh, though malleable and moldable into whatever you want it to be, you're not at liberty to remake the supper in your own image, guys. It's the Lord's supper. And so he reminds them. He tells them, look, I delivered over, this is picking up again in verse 23, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, in the night in which he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. 
In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, I don't know how much you know about the Bible. You may not be used to, to reading the Bible. It may not be your thing. But there are sometimes in the Bible when your mind gets blown. You know, we have it in our minds that the Bible is some ancient document cobbled together over centuries. And can, you know, the people on History Channel, can we even be confident that they haven't left some stuff out because they want us to believe certain things? And then you come to passages like this in 1 Corinthians 11, where before the gospel records that we have in our Bible have even been written, the Apostle Paul, who never met Jesus himself, is able to quote verbatim the words that Jesus spoke to his disciples on the night of his betrayal. Oh, the Bible is trustworthy. It is the Word of God completely without error and inerrant, and it has a claim on your life. Whether you're a first century Corinthian, whether you're a 21st century American, God wants to speak to you about this. See, the Lord's Supper, what we're going to celebrate in just a few minutes, is straight from Jesus' mouth. You can read it more in detail in Luke chapter 22. But he gathered his disciples, these 12 friends of his, who he'd called to follow him and learn from him and live the way he lived. They went into an upper room to celebrate this ancient feast called the Passover. That's a commemorative feast. It meant something. That every year in the first of the month, first month of the year, God called his ancient people Israel to gather together and to go through a ritual called Passover. He wanted to remind them of who they were, what they were all about. That in the genesis of their life as His covenant people, they were in slavery in Egypt. Maybe you remember the ten plagues, turning the Nile River into blood, sending frogs and crickets, causing cows to get all lean and waste away in the pastures. You know, all kinds of terrible things. Finally, God caused it to be dark across the land of Egypt. So dark, they said it, it's a darkness that you could feel. It just kind of got down in your bones, created a sort of terror within you. That wasn't the worst of it. God decided that because Egypt had mistreated his firstborn son, Israel, that God was going to take every firstborn child from the houses of the Egyptians. And so he did. He sent his destroying angel into Egypt, and in every household, God killed the firstborn son. But, but an interesting thing happened, that he had provided a means of escape for his people. He told them to take a lamb, the appropriate size for their family to eat, so that none was left. He said to sacrifice it, offer it up as an offering to God, and to drain its blood into a bowl. Before they ate it, they were to take some blood out of the bowl and paint it on the doorposts of their house, so that as the destroying angel came through the land, he would pass over their homes. See the blood of the lamb that was slain passing over their firstborn children. So every year, God commanded His people to reenact that first Passover, to remind themselves that it was God who had a claim on every last one of us, and yet He provided a means of escape. That He saw the blood of the lamb on our doorposts, and He led us out of Egypt and consecrated us to Him as His treasured possession and His chosen people. The amazing thing is, Jesus, 30-year-old man, would have celebrated the Passover 30 times. But this time was totally different. 
Because as he went through the process, as the household host, leading the family around his table through each element of the meal, he didn't just simply recite the old phrases, the old ways. He took the familiar elements and he reinterpreted them with reference to himself. He took the bread and broke it. He didn't say, remember that flatbread that our ancient people brought with them out of Egypt because they didn't have time to let it rise. He didn't say, drink the bitter cup of exile, of wandering. What in pointing them to an event in the past, but preparing them for an event that was about to happen. This bread is my body, which is broken for you. This cup is my blood of the new covenant, which is poured out for the forgiveness of sins. See, the Corinthians weren't at liberty to remake the Lord's Supper into their own image. It's Jesus' Supper. He's the Lord we're talking about. He defines what it means and what it's all about. It is a visible reminder of the gospel message that we preach. What normally enters into our ears, now we see with our eyes, tangibly. Christ's body was broken. His blood was shed for me and you. We get to taste it. It's real. Brought out of a message and into our hearts by faith. The reason this is the case is because Jesus says we ought to do it in remembrance of Him. See, in a few minutes you're going to get one of these prepackaged dispensers with the lo- uh, wafer on top. I'm going to say loafers. <laughs> Maybe you're a shoe person like me and you got some loafers in your closet. But a wafer on top, a little, a little cracker, some juice inside. You know, if you were to find that in a jacket pocket a few weeks from now, it's not some kind of magical spiritual sustenance like a level up in a video game. You know, you get a refresh, a boost. It's nothing like that. We also don't believe, like some of our other friends, that something magically happens when the words are recited. Instead, what we believe is the cracker and the juice is a token that points beyond itself to something else. It's kind of like this red bracelet I wear. I don't know if you've ever noticed. I've been wearing this bracelet since August. I got it on a trip with my family. And every time I look down at my bracelet, I think about Knox and Aaron and Mary Jo and the trip we were on. And it sort of draws me towards our next trip. And so I think about it with longing. You know, the other thing that's kind of like that is my wedding ring. I know some of y'all may have a wedding ring on. And every time I look down at my wedding ring, it is a tangible reminder that I'm married. You know, I, I know I'm married. It's an inescapable fact. Go home at the end of the day, and there's my wife. But, you know, it's a nervous habit some men have where you stand and you're just sort of touching your ring, you're rolling it around your fingers. Some guys take it off and then it bounces around everywhere. But it is a tangible reminder that I'm in a relationship with another person that has total claim over my life. It's a constant reminder. I look down and see it and think about my wife. And Jesus intends for us as His people to experience the same thing when we come together for the Lord's Supper. That we're supposed to remember, do this in remembrance of me. The, the, the thing that makes the Lord's Supper so special is remembering. Calling to mind the truth that kind of can become cliche to those of us who've been walking with the Lord a while. 
Jesus died for me. Okay, yeah, I've learned that. I knew that when I was their age. When I was a little kid standing up on stage at Vacation Bible School, I knew that. That's old stuff. Give me something new. Give me something fresh. Give me something that's really going to help me deal with the troubles of my life. But that's not the way it works. We're going to avoid mission drift. Constantly keep before us who we are and what we're supposed to be about. It's going to be because when we come to something as simple and bizarre as the Lord's Supper, we recognize its origin as a reminder of Jesus' death. And by faith, we remind ourselves, He did that for me. He broke His body for me, shed His blood for me. See, the Corinthians were at risk of forgetting all about this. Instead of seeing it as a wonderful reminder of what Christ had done for them, they had turned it into an opportunity for feasting, the way they might would in the outside world. Now, Paul gets into this down in verse 24, 27. He says, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. But a man, or we could say, and a woman, a man or woman, must examine themselves, and in so doing, they are to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For the person who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself, if he doesn't judge the body rightly. For this reason, many among you are weak and sick, and a number sleep. That's a nice way of saying some of y'all have died because of this. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we wouldn't be judged. But when we are judged, we're disciplined by the Lord, so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that you'll not come together for judgment. The remaining matters I'll arrange when I come. See, because the Corinthians had lost sight of the origin of the supper, they were at risk of missing out on the benefit of the supper, the natural outcome of the supper, which is a reminder of the unity they shared with one another. Maybe remember, we just read a few verses ago, I think in verses maybe 18 and 19, when Paul says, it's not the Lord's Supper you guys are eating, you're eating your own suppers. Some of you guys go hungry, and some of you guys get drunk. And the idea behind this, you might think, we drink grape juice, but even if you did have a little bit of wine, same quantity as what we drink in grape juice, you're not likely to get drunk off of that. But they were getting drunk. And the reason is because in the first century, the church celebrated the Lord's Supper a little bit differently than us. Usually it took place after a feast. They called it the love feast. And so they have this gigantic meal. I mean, the best Sunday dinner you've ever seen. Pot roast, potatoes, carrots, cornbread, the whole deal. They'd have this feast, and at the end of it, they'd commemorate Christ's death together. But because Corinth was such a hierarchical and I keep using this word, stratified, society, those same sort of ideas had crept into the church. And so the well-to-do members of the church, uh, you might think about them as the haves, would eat inside the house in a special Roman dining hall where they would recline around the table and eat ribeyes and drink the best wine, and they'd have a feast. Meanwhile, the have-nots, the blue-collar folks who were probably weren't off work yet when they started their party, 
got the seconds that were left over, and they ate in the lobby of the home, outside the house. See, they'd forgotten what the Lord's Supper was all about and had turned it into an occasion for partying. They'd baptized their desire to have a dinner party. And Paul said, that is totally out of bounds. You've missed it. You've drifted off the mission. You've forgotten what the supper is all about. And so he says their main need, in verses 28 and 29, is to examine themselves. Examine themselves. Now, I know you all know this verse because we often use this as pastors to warn you before you partake, not to partake in an unworthy way. There's a way to partake of this meal that's the right way. Not to satisfy curiosity of children. Not to just kind of go through the motions because everybody else is doing it. But to really pause and think. To examine yourselves. But verse 29 is the kicker. Because you want to judge the body rightly. If you don't judge the body rightly, you drink and eat judgment to yourself. And you run the risk of getting sick or even dying. I remember as a child hearing that and being so concerned. That's kind of a scary thought to think about. And so I want to know, as a pastor, as a Bible reader, I want to understand what Paul means when he says, judge the body rightly. Are you all with me? Say yes if you are. Yes, Yes, you're with me. Good. So we want to know, what does it mean to judge the body rightly? i got to tell you some bad news. It's kind of ambiguous. What's he talking about exactly? You know, some people think that when Paul says you need to judge the body rightly, what he means is that you need to reflect on the elements of the supper. This is my body which is broken for you. And so before you ever eat or drink, you need to have it clear in your mind that somehow this eating and drinking is about Christ's body. Okay, And that is, makes, it makes a lot of sense to me for, a, for a one specific reason. That it is in Christ's body, in His death, that we find forgiveness of sins. This is what this is all about. This is my body which is broken for you. This is my blood of the new covenant poured out for you. As often as you eat and drink, drink in remembrance of me. So I want to remember that this isn't just any old cracker. This isn't just any old grape juice. There's something extra significant that sets this apart from all other crackers and all other grape juice on the face of the earth. This is the body and blood of Christ. I'm supposed to look through this as I look through a window to see the reality that lies beyond it. So I need to discern the body. You know, Paul talks about this in Romans 5, how essential the body of Christ is in our walk with the Lord. Paul says that at the right time, Christ died for the helpless. One will seldom die for a righteous person, though perhaps one would dare to die for a good man. But God showed His love for us in this way, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. It's what Mike read to us in Isaiah 53. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastisement that brought us peace was upon Him, and by His stripes we are healed. Y'all, if you're going to eat of the Lord's Supper, you got to recognize what it's all about. It's not something to be partaken of lightly, but to understand its significance. And if you don't have a share in the death of Christ by having received forgiveness of your sins and new life in Him, this thing is meaningless for you. So maybe that's what he means. Judge the body rightly. But there's another angle to it. Over in chapter 10... He told the Corinthians that they eat of one loaf because they are one body. 
And in chapter 12, he's going to open up the teaching about spiritual gifts. And he's going to tell them that they are like members of a body, each one of them having their own particular function that functions together as they make up the body of Christ. That's a, a huge part of Paul's theology, that each of us as individual Christians are not our own. We belong to God and we belong to each other. That you and I need each other. There's no lone ranger Christians. We're each a member of Christ's body and belong to each other. And I think that Paul intends for us to find meaning in both. He wants us to judge the body in the sense of recognizing the deep significance that the Lord's Supper has as it points beyond itself to Christ's death. And he wants us to open our eyes and look around and see the other people for whom Christ died. And the deal is, the Corinthians were at risk of drifting from their mission because they had adopted the same kind of mindset that characterized the world. That there are such a things as haves and have-nots. And those divisions and distinctions are totally normal and appropriate in the world. That's just kind of the way things work. But Paul said they were totally missing it. That at the cross, everything is equal. There are no privileged people at the cross. Nobody gets to go first in line. Nobody has a leg up. Everybody's the same. Paul says it in Romans. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. So what sense is there in coming into the church and continuing to stress division? It makes no sense. I was thinking about it. We think demographically. Demographics is everything. There's rich and there's poor. There's old and there's young. There's blue collar, and there's white collar, there's white, there's black, there's brown. There's the haves, there's the have-nots. We can keep going, right? There's those who live on the north side of the tracks, those who live on the south side of the tracks, those who had power during the storms, and those who didn't. We think in these terms. It's the way it is. We think demographically about people. But the Bible says, not demographically, but emphatically, all we like sheep go astray. White people suffer from the same maladies as brown people, y'all. Rich people and poor people are just the same at the foot of the cross. There's nothing distinguishing between us. The Bible doesn't say that God came to save white people and rich people. Paul says it's a trustworthy statement worthy of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Period. So what happens when a church like the church in Corinth starts identifying within its midst the haves and the have-nots? And everybody knows it, because when they come to celebrate the Lord's Supper, they can see inside the house, man, wish I had a ribeye like that. Man, I wish somebody would fill my glass again. Instead, they're out here eating Ritz crackers, drinking whatever they could find. And Paul says this isn't the way things are supposed to be. You guys have missed the origin of the supper, and you're suffering. You're not having the outcome of the supper, which is supposed to be unity in the body of Christ. That's what the supper is all about. Drawing these two things together to constantly hold before our minds the truth. That Jesus died to save us from our sins and to unite us to people as His church. And so this morning, as we prepare to celebrate the Lord's Supper, I want to urge you, as Paul urged the Corinthians, to examine yourself. To examine yourself. Two real questions that you got to ask, right? And, and listen carefully. The first one is this. 
do I have a share in Christ's death? Do I have a share in Christ's death? It's one thing to say Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That's a doctrinal and theological statement that is true. It's objective fact. He did that. It's another thing entirely to say Christ Jesus came into the world to save me from my sins. That's a subjective, personal fact that when taken root in a person's life changes everything about them. The question you have to ask yourself today, every one of y'all, not just certain segments of the population, every one of you, every one of us, do I have a share in Christ's death? The Bible says that we were created for intimate, personal fellowship with God. Every one of us. But that by our own sin, we've gone astray like sheep and have turned to our own way. And we know it. We know that our lives are messes. We, we see the brokenness in the world. We all can agree on that. The problem is we can't quite agree on the solution. And so each of us tries to figure it out. And so we will expend ourselves in career, in school, in sports, hoping that if we can just receive the praise of somebody, somebody says, attaboy, good job, that finally the brokenness of our life will somehow fall into place. Now, others of us try to remedy this brokenness with love. And so we go through strings of relationships, which are totally destructive, harmful, and we know it. But we just need somebody to tell us that they love us. And then that brokenness will all fit together. Others of us have tried everything. You name it. Tried it. It doesn't work. And so we want to escape the brokenness. That's what happens when people turn to substances and experiences to try to solve their brokenness. But it doesn't matter. You choose your poison. Every one of them ends up in the same place. The Bible says there's a way that seems right to a person, but its end is death. You know it. You've been there. You've seen the destruction in your family, in your relationships, in the world. But here's the deal. This whole Jesus thing, God sending forth His Son to be born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who are under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons, that... He Himself bearing our sins in His body on the tree that we might die of sin and live to righteousness. All the stuff the Bible talks about, that Jesus took on our brokenness so that we could experience wholeness. Do you have a share in that? Do you know that Jesus didn't just die for some sinner somewhere, but He died for you. Before you dare open up the top of that cracker, you better answer that question. Yes. Some of y'all know you don't. You know. In the bottom of your heart and your soul, you know. You don't have a share in Christ's death. The Bible also speaks to you. It says today is the day of salvation. Now is the favorable Time. You're not guaranteed another day, not another minute, moment. You know in your soul you don't share in Christ's death. Today is the day you do. Maybe you need to pray a prayer. Jesus, you see the brokenness of my life. 
You see how I've tried to solve it in all the ways I have. And here I am. Lord, I'm done. I'm broken. I need you to heal me. I need you to save me. I need you to set my life on the right track. Today I commit with everything I am to living for you. Pray that prayer today or a prayer like it that comes from your own heart. Do it and join with us as we remember Christ's death for sins. So the first question, do I have a share in Christ's death? The second question is just as important. Am I experiencing meaningful relationships with other Christians? We're always tempted when we come to the Lord's Supper to make it a me and Jesus moment. We, pastors, we, we force people into this. We, it's a solemn thing, and so we go through the song, and everybody's there, and you slowly, in COVID, peel the thing off, and it's a solemn moment between you and the Lord. And how beautiful is that? But Paul said the solution to the Corinthians' problem was to wait for each other. Wait for each other. You guys are coming together, not for the better, but for the worse, and the solution to all your problems, discern the body rightly and wait for each other. Eat together. Don't enshrine division. Be one body. So do you have meaningful relationships with other Christians? There's no Lone Ranger Christian, you know, no longer no Lone Ranger Christianity. We belong to each other. We need each other. Do you know the meaningful personal relationships that come from belonging to the body of Christ? Now Jesus knew that there would be people who would struggle with that for whatever reason. But he knew that sometimes the fact that we don't experience meaningful personal relationships with other Christians is kind of our own fault. He talked about it in the Sermon on the Mount. He said, hey, if you're offering up a sacrifice on the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your sacrifice at the altar and go be reconciled to your brother, and then come back and make your sacrifice. For Jesus, the one thing that was more important than offering a sacrifice to God was pursuing reconciliation with a brother. Why? Why do we allow division to divide the body of Christ? Why do we allow hurt feelings, stepped on toes? Why? Maybe today is the day that you need to refrain from eating the Lord's Supper until you can reconcile with that person who hurt you. Maybe today they're here, sitting three rows in front of you. You've been holding a grudge and unforgiveness towards this person for years. Maybe as Mike and the band are leading us in our next song, you need to get out from your spot, go over to that person, and ask for forgiveness. James says, confess your sins one to another, and you'll be saved. Tell them, hey, I did this to you behind your back, or I said this about you, and it's been bothering me, or you said this about me, and I haven't been able to let it go. Can we bury the hatchet today? It's important. Just as important as knowing as you have a share in Christ's death is knowing that you experience personal relationships with other Christians. And this morning, if you can say yes, I know beyond a shadow of a doubt, not only that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, but He died to save me. And you know that you have meaningful personal relationships in the body of Christ. Eat and receive from the Lord His good blessings. It is the only thing is able to keep a church on track. The constant, regular, faithful remembering of Christ's death in the Lord's Supper that we proclaim to the world until He comes.
Will you all pray with me?